What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. As disgusting as it is, one of the great mysteries of American politics will always be how did an ignorant, crooked, amoral, despicable, lying, cheating, flim-flam developer from New York City take over the Republican Party? How and why did so many Republican leaders who had worked for years to build up and lead their party suddenly toss all their principles out the window and worship at the altar of Donald Trump? Well, it takes a party insider like Tim Miller to tell that story and explain how it happened. At one time, Miller worked for John McCain, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, John Huntsman. He was a self-described Republican hatchet man, but he saw what was happening to the party. He didn't like it, he couldn't stand Donald Trump, and he walked away. Now, in his new book, Why We Did It, Tim Miller tells a sad tale of so many who did not walk away, like. Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and others. If you wonder, what the hell were they thinking? How could they possibly justify working for or supporting a dirtbag like Donald Trump? Read this book, Why We Did It, by Tim Miller, who joins us today. Tim Miller, good to talk to you, and thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. Hey, Bill. It's good to be with you, man. Hey, so uh, I see from the, your latest in the Bulwark uh, that, oh, wait, Ted Cruz called you a hack? <laughs> I mean, I know you had this little confrontation uh, with him uh, out in Arizona. Uh, here's just a little bit of it. Hey, Senator. How good to doing? see you in Arizona. It's good to be you, here. You objected to the 2020 vote here in Arizona uh, and uh, in the Senate. You were the lead Senate objector to that. Since then, there have been a few audits. The Republican governor, Republican Senate president, the Republican Speaker of the House all said the election was fair. Do you disagree with Doug Ducey and agree with Blake Masters and Kerry Lake, or have you changed your view? It's been, a, it's been two years now. There's a reason the media is a joke, because questions like that, please, let's have one Republican fight with another Republican. People that Arizona voted for board. Joe Biden. Look, I get Wait, no, right? You, did I, they not? Did they or did I they not vote for Joe Biden? Your job did they or did they not vote for Joe Biden? But that's I'm not your you job, and I don't care about your political agenda. I don't have this I'm is asking you. Okay, did, you done. tried That's to object to done. their, to their vote. You're done. Why am I done? You, because you're being a hack. Wow. Sounds like uh, <laughs> quite an encounter. Tell us about it. What happened? Yeah, well, you know, usually you just dismiss Ted Cruz name calling you, but uh, he does have some expertise in hackery. So <laughs> I, um, I, I did some reflection on it. But yeah, I mean, the gist was um, well, I was there. I was uh, taping the circus for Showtime, which aired uh, last night, Sunday night. And um, uh, I was the guest host this week, and he 
Uh, he was in Arizona. It was Ted Cruz, for people who don't remember, who objected to the state's electoral count. Oh, yeah, um, big and, time. Yeah, and he, right. yeah, he was the main – you needed a Senate and a House objector. Now they had some crazy Republican House members like Paul Gosar, et cetera, who could, who could do it in the House. But that you know, there was two Democratic senators from Arizona, so they needed Cruz to be the one that actually made this objection happen on January 6th. Well, it's been – you know, 20 months since that. And there have been <laughs> yeah. three audits and the Republican governor of Arizona has uh, upheld right. the results. And any sane person knows that there was no fraud at this point. And so I felt like given that he was in the state, it was an appropriate time to check in with him and see if maybe he'd updated his thinking on whether the election in Arizona was fraudulent in 2020. He didn't want to go there, of course. Um, he just ignored that question completely and, and, and name called me and, and name called Joe Biden. Um, which I guess is right, but I, I think that the point here is that th- that he these guys masters too is in the same boat in Arizona are stuck in the situation where they can't tell the truth about the election because the lie has grown and grown and and the beast is out of their control now and so they don't want to you know get fruit thrown at them by their own fans who are there in attendance. Uh, but at the same time, they they're, they're trying to back off the crazy because they know it's repelling swing voters uh, in in, in mm-hmm. critical states like Arizona. Yeah, so they're really they're really caught right between the rock and the hard place. This is the lie that they helped create, they perpetuated, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now it could <laughs> come back and bite them in the ass. God willing, I don't, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I think it certainly could come back and bite Masters in the ass. I I think some of the others, you know, Carrie Lake, who is very scary, is running for governor of the state, is much more adept at walking this right. lie than hackish Ted Cruz and Blake Masters. And and I'm I'm concerned yeah. that she it's working for her. Uh, and and but it's not. It it certainly is is something that Cruz and, and Masters are struggling to to negotiate. Well, um, help me out. Don't I remember uh, that um, uh, Donald Trump? called Ted Cruz's wife ugly, that Donald Trump accused Ted Cruz's father of being part of the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy, and now Ted Cruz is the apologist for Donald Trump? Yeah, and I'm the hack. Uh, it is funny. I, you know, and and the, the other wrinkle to this, Bill, is that, I, and I think this is why, so Ted, it's kind of fun for listeners who don't know, I used to be literally a political hack uh, and, a, and a communications guy for Republicans. And, and so it's been fun to be on the other side of the gaggle and, and just, uh, uh, you know, get to create trouble. Uh, I've been enjoying that and that, that change. But, but Cruz walks right up to me and looks at me uh, to ask, have me ask the first question. I think it's because somewhere in that little lizard brain, he remembered that like <laughs> for three months, I supported Ted Cruz yeah, because he was the only way to stop Trump. Remember, he does the vote your conscience at the convention. And, and, and it was three days after that convention that, that his pollster called me and I went over and, and I went to meet him at a bar and he showed me Ted's polls, poll numbers after his vote your conscience speech at the convention. And I'd never seen anything like it. He went from like an 80% approval with, with Republicans to a 20% approval in four days. Right. And so that, and so that's yeah. the answer to your question. Why is Ted Cruz acting like this? Why is Ted Cruz, you know, sucking up to the guy that insulted his dad and wife? You know, why is he lashing out at me? Well, it's because he asked him. If he wants to 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 you know stay in the Senate and and get all the attention that he craves, so he's sort of emblematic. One of the people you talk about uh, in your book, why we did it. Uh, by the way, congratulations! Uh, I love the book. It's a real uh, it's a real wild read. And look, Tim, you were right in the heart of it. I mean, as you call yourself a professional hatchet man, you know, you work for a lot of these guys. You were communications director for the for the rnc you are right in the middle of it what 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 if you had to describe donald trump in one word right 
I know that's tough, but what would it, what would it be? Uh, irredeemable? I don't know. Despicable? <laughs> Something like that. I hate him. That's my question, and you you that's what your book is all about. How does somebody who is irredeemable, who is despicable, take over the entire Republican Party in like six months? How'd you let it happen? Yeah, well, not you, but uh, yeah, the no, party. I mean, sure, me in part. Um, I, I, this was a, a long time coming, and I, so this is why the first half of the book is basically this look back. And I'm sure you know you, Bill, could take yeah. could have taken us back on a tour to the to the 80s in California or something. But I, I wanted to start where, where I saw you know where I saw things firsthand, which was with Palin. Yeah, and and look, we were we were playing with fire this whole time in the Republican establishment. Uh, um, we knew that there was a reactionary strain within the party base. Um, you know, there were obviously some reactionaries who got elected in certain places in Congress, et cetera. It wasn't like Ted Cruz, or it wasn't like Donald Trump was the first one. Um, and, and, and we, we were playing this big game. We wanted to beat the Democrats. And so we'd throw, we'd in, in, uh, get the base all riled up, throw them red meat. You know, they'd listen to Rush, they'd listen to Fox. Um, and, mm-hmm. and get mad, get get mad and aggrieved about what, whatever it was that week. Immigrants or, or uh, you know, college elites are all the same things that they're mad about now, uh, really. And 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 we figured that we are kind of the adults, right, in charge that could put bumpers on the extremism and and you know use their energy to to get more normal Republicans like Mitt Romney or whoever elected. And, and, and I, you know, I, there was some logic to that because it worked kind of for a while, right? Uh, but right. it really shouldn't have been surprising that somebody who more authentically could channel their grievances, even though it's a performance for him, uh, he's a much better performer, um, you know, could disrupt this whole game. And, and it's something we should have seen coming. It almost happened with Palin, frankly. It almost happened in 12 with Herman Cain and Michelle Bachman mm-hmm. and Gingrich. And, and it, it was, I think, to anybody whose eyes were open, um, it was inevitable that it was going to happen eventually. And in, in parts of my brain, this is what the book's about. This is why I, you know, wrap myself on the knuckles over and over again. I, I knew it, right? Like, I saw it, that, that this was possible. I didn't think it would be someone quite as irredeemable and despicable as Donald Trump. But but he was just leveraging all the same tools that we were using uh, much more effectively. So when what was your come-to-Jesus moment, if I can use that phrase? Yeah. Where you said, I just can't take it anymore, right? My my soul will not allow me to stay here and pretend uh, that I can be part of this. Yeah, mess. the real answer, because I think it's important to understand, is that there were it wasn't one, and there were three, right? And I'll just be very quick. But I, I knew it yeah. with Palin. I wrote about it at the at the at the beginning of the book. So the first chapter is is about the McCain campaign. Yep. I knew it. I knew it, and I got back in anyway. The first time for good intentions, right? I, I worked for John Huntsman, who is the most moderate. Candidate to run, uh, you know, in my lifetime, I agreed with on basically everything, and, and so you know, then I kind of get pulled back in Godfather style, you know, into into the game. Um, Trump went. Trump, you know, wins the nomination, and and I, and really, it was late in that process. I thought we were going to be able to beat him late to late in the process, um, but he was so far afield for me. I never even considered for a moment that I might support Donald Trump. Um, uh, that said. You know, when he finally wins a year later, I did go in and help Scott Pruitt. And, and, and yep. it was, I didn't go into the EPA. I just helped him with his confirmation. I, I needed something to do. I, I felt desperate. I didn't have a job. And so, I, you know, even I, despite seeing him as irredeemable, kind of was 
a participant, a collaborator in this at some level. Now, it didn't last that long. And eventually I told Scott Pruitt's communications guy to tell him to stop calling me. <laughs> but oh, right. but uh, it yeah. wasn't like even that was one big moment. It was a gradual over time. I was just like, no, I can't do this. I need to you know, move to California and, and clean myself and, and try to figure out what to do with my life. So it, it, it really... It really wasn't like, you know, Paul falling off the, or Saul falling off the horse. Uh, you know, yeah. it's something that happened over time, uh, an awareness that grew over time. So in the book, that first half of the book is all about you, and then you also talk about some of the other people uh, around Trump, including people, you know, like Paul Ryan, for example, or others who, they didn't like Trump, they didn't, uh, they didn't like his style. They didn't, I don't know about policies. They certainly didn't like his lifestyle, right? But they went along with him anyway. Yeah. Why? Well, there are a bunch of reasons. And that's kind of what I diagram in the second half of the book. And I, and I, and I really focus on people like Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus, yeah. Wisconsin, who is my boss. Um, yeah. uh, because these, uh, you know, it's easy to sit back and just say, okay, my, my political enemy, if you're a Democrat listening to this, my, they're all sociopaths and racists, right? Like, that's why they did it. They all love him actually secretly. And this is, and, and it's like, well, humans are more complicated than that, right? Like, there are some sociopaths and there are some racists around Donald Trump, no doubt. Uh, there also were a bunch of people who, who really genuinely didn't like him, but Trump, but, but they're, they played tricks with their own brain or they had, they had darker angels that motivated them to do it. And it was mostly either, you know, access to power, um, uh, you know, the fame and the celebrity and the rush that comes from politics, uh, convincing themselves that they really loathe the left. I and mean, this is something that in all my interviews for the book really caught me off guard was how much like that just yep. the, the deep seated grievance they have over stupid stuff, pronouns or whatever. Um, you know, that, that is part of it. Some of them, were on the more earnest side of the scale, like actually thought it was like, well, we need good people to serve the government, you know, but then that becomes a very convenient excuse, right? Like you convince yourself yeah. that you're needed, um, you know, in order to take a job you kind of want, right? And so, you know, there, I, I, I go through each archetype uh, and, and some are just like at least Stefanik, just pure, purely driven by, by ambition. And, and power, um, and 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 I think for for certain people, it's a it's a combination of the various reasons. Some of the saddest to me, and you mentioned Reince Priebus as a as a great example uh, that you talk about, were and were those who really believed that they could prevent Trump from going off the rails. Right? I mean, yeah. they were they they were the line between Trump and total chaos. Right? And that they could change him. Uh, talk and in some cases, I guess they did talk him out of some crazy things. Yeah, I mean, but, the Reince one is the funny, just because it's like anyone who actually knows Reince Priebus, nobody, no one, not even his wife, thought that Reince Priebus was going to be able to contain Donald Trump. Right? That, that just <laughs> right. was not in his makeup, and so for him to tell himself that was just preposterous. And when I went round and round with him for the book, you know, he would say thing, and when I read interviews and talk to his friends, it's like. It's when it was convenient, he'd say he, he was in there to help stop, you know, to help control Trump, you know, but in, in different settings, right, when he's talking to pro-MAGA people, you know, he would say the opposite, right? Uh, you know, whatever he needed to say in order to rationalize getting this very important job and feeling in the mix. So I think that's a particularly kind of pathetic example. You know, there were others that were more genuine. I interviewed Alyssa Farah, you know, who, who ended up going in to be his communications director, and she worked for Mike Esper. Esper is another example of this at DOD. And they really did, right. you know, do things. It's like they stopped him from ending stars and stripes, and they stopped yeah. him from, you know, declaring 
uh, martial law or, um, you know, uh, uh, the insurrection act, uh, you know, towards the end, you know, that said though, when, when she, when Pharaoh would list to me all the crazy things that she saw that they either prevented or almost prevented, I was, I, I said to her, I said, well, that why weren't you screaming from the rooftops that this is an insane person and we need mm-hmm. to stop him. Mm-hmm. We need to support Joe Biden. And that is really the, failing of all these people in my view it's like if you were genuinely going in just to protect the country from trump then you would have done the right thing and supported joe biden in 2020 um but 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 none of them really did there were three you know kind of mid-level folks olivia troy you know that worked with us on republican voters against trump but but none of the senior folks did that no uh by the way Alyssa fire is a uh, sort of per- a personal interest to me because her father, yeah. and as you point out, her father stayed with Trump all the way and, and was at the Capitol on January 6th. Alyssa Farah wanted Biden to win. I, maybe I she voted it. for him. I'm not sure. But she did, in secret, right, but she did leave, finally, the administration. But at one point, Joe Farah, World Net Daily, actually carried my... <laughs> lefty column. <laughs> I, I think it was sort of his one attempt to show that, well, hey, we're balanced or whatever. But really? uh, he ran, he ran my it, column for a while and I got paid for it too. So I, I thought that the two I, of them actually were very, a very representative of the party in miniature. So like, yeah, all that right. daily was, as you know, it like insane. And oh. it was really kind of proto the conspiracy, you know, the anti vax kind of anti, you know, anti Semitic, like all of that sort of stuff was. Yeah. That came out in Trump in Trump world and became more explicit. It was explicit just in the nether regions of the web and World Net Daily, and 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 Alyssa never was attracted to that, right? And she thought the whole time, okay, well, I will take the good parts of what my dad believes, and and we'll try to you know put put uh, bumpers on on the bad parts and contain it, and you know control it, and it's better to have smart, right? And so in a lot of ways, the in the fa- the family is the party in miniature, like it was the dad being the pure yeah. mega. Uh, right. and, and the daughter, you know, being the establishment person that wants to contain mm-hmm. it and, and thinking that they can. And, and obviously, we all know uh, being unable to. Right. And I was really struck by that. Uh, we, uh, we don't have time to talk about all of them. But the three saddest stories, I guess, I think you tell are Sean Spicer, <laughs> Chris Christie and Lindsey Graham. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they all know better. Right. And they all just got sucked in. And Lindsey Graham is still sucked in, I guess. Yeah, um, it's pathetic. The, the most pathetic thing about it is just how much these guys want to be in the Hamilton phrase in the room where it happened. Like that's really what this all comes down to. And Christie basically admits this accidentally in an interview where he's like, you know, when I left the governor's mansion, you know, the day after I passed the keys off, he's like, it's like the music stops. Nobody calls me anymore. You know, nobody wants, and it's not, and he's not saying that like he can't help people anymore. He's saying he's not getting attention anymore. And, and, and so, so he needed to fill that with something. And, and so, you know, he runs for president, fails. And then it's like, well, how can I get the most attention? How can I be the most important by being in the middle of this with Donald Trump, somebody he happened to know from being in the New York region together? Like that is so, from a guy who has this brand of being a tough guy. You know, he'll stand up to people and it's not a wuss like these triggered libs. Like, like this is it. He just wanted to be loved. Like, he just wanted to, that, like, to, be, to get attention. And so he, so he threw everything away for Donald Trump. I, it's just, it's, and, and he almost dies because of Donald Trump. Donald Trump gives him COVID, yeah. you know, and Chris <laughs> right. has, yeah. has some comorbidities. Let's be honest. Donald Trump gives him COVID, doesn't tell him he has COVID, sits in a small contained room with him, doesn't wear a mask, blows his breath all over him. Christie is in the ICU. 
and yet even still doesn't turn on him. No. And then Donald Trump calls him and says, you're not going to blame me, are you? Right. <laughs> he, he doesn't say, I hope you survive. I hope, you're, I hope okay. you're okay. I'm going to send you no. some M&Ms. Yeah, no. <laughs> Lindsey Graham, uh, helpless. I mean, is this the pilot fish, right? He's got to have some strong guy that he swims alongside of. I guess and it doesn't matter is, who it is. Yeah, I guess that's it. I don't, you know, that is the hardest part to get inside the, like, like what the most deepest level of his psychology is. But, but the thing is, I I'll tell you, he, ha- he hated, he hated Trump. And I tell the story where yeah, we're, we're yeah. drinking. You, I mean, it wasn't right. an act. It wasn't an act. We were off, you know, we're at a hotel and like we're with Jeb and he is ranting and raving about Trump. No cameras around, no, uh, you know, no tape recorder. Like this was his true beliefs. And he just flipped on a dime. Uh, You know, I think probably because McCain, sadly, he didn't have McCain to, you know, kind of give him this this Mm -hmm. stern Mm -hmm. back that he needed, you know, and, and, and I think that it's just as simple as that. And he does, he is continuing to do it and will continue to do it till, till his dying day. I think it's pretty clear at this point. So let's jump to today just a bit. Do you believe that uh, Donald Trump is as strong today uh, as he's ever been? Any, do you see any (laughs) <laughs> Any cracks in the dam here? Or, uh... I don't know about as strong as he's ever been, but he's pretty strong. So I, I guess I, yeah. I use a, a, a rubric of let's look at – he won the 2016 primary uh, pretty pretty easily, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like it wasn't particularly yeah. close. I, he ended up with about 45% of the share of the vote. And, and people say it's because, well, there are 16 other people and whatever. But I, is that really true? I mean, when there were two people with Ted Cruz, he crushed them. When there were two people with Marco Rubio, he crushed them. Um, so I, I don't right, actually know right. that that was the reason. Uh, he had, you know, basically about half the party. Um, that it went, you mm-hmm. know, when, when on the day before the election day, 2020, you know, he had 91% of the party, right? So he had grown quite a bit. I, I think that he's, I think that he's come back to somewhere between 91 and 45. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that he's at the peak yeah. of his powers. Yeah. I think that some people are sick of him. Some people look at Ron DeSantis and they're say, they say we get 90% of the lib owning, you know, without the, Without all the baggage, um, maybe we could move on to him. I think that's what some conservatives think. That's not where I am, obviously. But um, uh, so the thing is, though, he he, he isn't back down to where he was. Uh, he's still above where he was when he won <laughs> in, in twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. right? So so I think that there's been some um, some diminishment of him over the, you know the, his obsession with with uh, the twenty twenty election. But but I think he still has a stranglehold on the party, and it still be very very challenging. I don't think anybody really can take him on, with the exception of DeSantis um, or somebody completely off the wall, you know, like a Tucker uh, or something. Right, and a lot is hanging on the midterms, isn't it? In terms of a reflection of how how much influence he has on the party and how he's able to lift the party or bring it along. I think so. But this, this is the thing. Like logical people, you know, might look at a Herschel Walker loss or an Oz loss and blame Trump. But mm-hmm. I don't think that MAGA voters who are who have who have huh. bought into the election lies are going to blame Trump right. for this. I, they might. Who knows? They might think that there's another steal, or they might blame the liberal media. They yeah. might blame the Republican yeah. establishment right. for not supporting Herschel enough, or whatever. You know what I mean? They'd come up with a million other reasons. So I, I do think that again, it will show some weakness with the Mitch McConnell crowd. But but the, but the thing is, that crowd has failed to beat Trump every step along the way, right? So right. you know, I, I think that you know potentially he could take on a little bit more brand damage in the midterms. But um, but his stranglehold on the on the on the voters, the bottom up element of this, is still very much there. 
so there are still outliers uh, like yourself, like the Lincoln Project, like Bill Crystal, you know, Charlie Sykes, and you're part of the uh, the bulwark, uh, who talk about the Republican Party the way it used to be and yearn to bring the party back to a, a principled party that had its strong policies uh, uh, and a real alternative from a policy point of view to the Democratic Party. Uh, is there still any, is there any chance of that or has this to become the MAGA party forever and you guys have lost the war? We've lost the war. I, I actually think that the groups that you just described, most of us are pretty much in, in league with the Democrats at this point. Um, you know, obviously not on every single issue, of course. We're still going to have some yeah. issue disagreements within the co- coalitions, but that always happens in a two-party country. I think that there's another group. There's a website called The Dispatch I really like, you know, Jonah Goldberg and them. I do think some of them oh, yeah. are still fighting for right. the the, the party to return. And I just, I think mm-hmm. that they're fighting a hopeless fight. I, you know, I think the best case scenario for the Republican party going forward is that Trump disappears. We won't say how, and that somehow it's replaced by, you know, kind of like a nationalist populist quasi isolationist kind of uh, European conservative mm-hmm. style party. Right. I think that that is yeah. where things are going. Uh, that's happening all over the world, by the way. You know, there are little mini Trumps in Brazil and India and France and Italy, right? I, I just like mm-hmm. I, that is w- where things are. That's where the trend is. Maybe that's not forever. Maybe that's just for a, a generation, you know. But I, I just think that in the next four, eight, twelve, you know, years, uh, that's that's the direction that things are going, and the, the Republican Party is going to move more and more, you know, towards this MAGA kind of national structure and the, the classical liberal kind of free markets, free people um, side, libertarianish side of the Republican Party is 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 in the in the ash heap at least for a while. You just stir things up in many ways, and recently you did about an op-ed in the New York Times about fundraising online, which is a favorite pet peeve of mine. Let's get into that. I want to take a quick break here, if we can, on the Bill Press Pod. Then we'll be right back. Great. All right, friends, it is exactly one month from today, the midterm elections. Yeah, things are getting really, really close. And, you know, in the past, I've I've asked you about supporting a lot of different races today. I want to focus on one so important maybe the most important Senate race in the country, and that's in Ohio. We have a great candidate, Tim Ryan, member of Congress, working class Democrat. He is just what the Democrats need in Ohio. Tim can win that race. He's up against this idiot J.D. Vance, who did nothing. Yeah, he wrote a book. He sold a lot of copies of that book, but otherwise he knows nothing, nothing about uh, U.S. policy or about government, does not deserve to be a Senate candidate. Here's the problem. National Republicans have pumped over $30 million trying to help J.D. Vance. And for some damn reason, the National Democratic organizations are putting in very little, if any, to help Tim Ryan. And yet that race is uh, just about a dead heat, a tie. Tim Ryan has run, I think, the best Senate campaign in the country. He's a great candidate. We can win Ohio, but Tim Ryan needs your help to keep the pressure on, to keep the momentum going right up to the end. So I really encourage you. Uh, I've helped Tim Ryan uh, with, uh, Carol and I did with a check this weekend. I encourage you to do the same. Here's the website, Tim4O.com. Tim4Ohio.com, but Tim4OH.com. Please send Tim Ryan whatever help you can. 
Ohio, Ohio, we can win Ohio. That will be a big win. Tim Ryan alongside of Sherrod Brown. Imagine that for Ohio. Let's make it happen. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod today. Our guest, Tim Miller, a former Republican operative, and now certainly a, uh, he was for a long time, a never Trumper. His new book is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell from a former a deep Republican insider. Uh, a great book. There'll be a link on the episode notes to today's podcast for you to get your copy of the book. Highly recommend it. It is a wild read i loved every page of it uh tim welcome back so uh so tim i spent about half of my day every day it seems deleting these crazy fundraising emails from every freaking candidate in the country democrat and republican for every office i can imagine you know this was at one time considered a reform right we were going to let little people put their five dollars online and that was going to be the answer to all the uh, the the fat cats who write the big checks. Uh, you point out that this has not really turned out that way, right? No, there have been some major, I, I love John McCain, there have been some major unintended consequences to campaign finance reform. <laughs> and also the Supreme Court rulings, of course, on, on Citizens United. So it's created this confluence of events. But, you know, I joked in the piece, or didn't joke, but I'm serious about it, but it was a little tongue-in-cheek comment that a lot of people said that, you know, the sort of grassroots fundraising you know, element, the people-powered campaigns, that this is what democracy looks like. Uh, but it turns out like this might also be how democracy ends. Um, uh, and they, the the amount of, you know, everyone hates the spam and is annoyed by it. So that's just one level of this. But when you go deeper, the Republican campaigns now have taken, the, and it's the far-right candidates, have taken the model that was pioneered by Howard Dean and John McCain and Obama eventually in 08 and used it for their own ends. And now, uh, you know, these candidates that in the past would have really struggled to gain traction and get primaries, you know, get past primaries, now 
are are fun are actually raising the most money. You know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world um, by you know saying the most outlandish things on social media and on Fox and on on OAN, all these other even crazier networks. And, and as a result, it has empowered you know the the extreme part of the of the Republican Party. Um, and, and on the Democratic side, it's kind of empowering you know these sort of fad candidates. You know that that the might not have as great of a chance to win. I just look at the Marjorie Taylor Greene district again. The guy running against her, Marcus Flowers, seems like a great guy. I have nothing against him. He has no prayer. He's going to lose by thirty points. He's raising way more money than than the candidate that like in the Iowa third district. You know that you've never heard of Cindy Cindy Axney. That might be the difference between whether Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy is the speaker. I mean that is a crazy system, and there's it has created a lot of terrible incentives empowered a lot of really bad actors. It's resulted in a lot of grifting, a lot of money making in a way that old people are giving away 10 bucks because they're getting confused, um, you know, by, you know, the complicated ways that the emails are being sent out. And, and I just, I wrote the column because I think it's time to review the whole thing, uh, you know, to re, to once again, step back and look at this whole system and recognize that this has not been the reform that we were hoping for. Uh, yeah, well, I hope we can uh, improve the situation and uh, and move on for sure. Uh, Tim, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I don't know whether you had a chance to see, but I haven't read this book yet or seen it. There's a new book out, was reviewed in the New York Times uh, over the weekend called Partisans uh, by Nicole Hemmer, who's up at Vanderbilt University. Uh, and she's making the point that it didn't start with Donald Trump. Let's go back to where the Republican Party uh, used to be or is today. Um, that she really goes back and said, you've got to look at uh, Newt Gingrich for paving the way. You've got to look at Rush Limbaugh for paving the way. And especially, you have to look at Pat Buchanan, my old uh, uh, co-host of uh, Crossfire on CNN, for paving the way. That So that this party's transformation didn't occur suddenly. It's been like underway for a quarter of a century. Uh, yeah, no doubt. You're, and it's Buchanan, really. What I described, what I described earlier, when I said where I think the Republican Party go- is going, is really Buchananism, right? Uh, your old colleague. So yeah, uh, he exactly. Was ahead yeah. of his time. Yeah, I, I basically would look at this, and and the best way to explain it is like for me is that the, is that that was always a present element, the Buchananite wing of the party within the party, but it was maybe a third of the party, mm-hmm. and, and and slowly it began to grow. And a few things happened along the way. One was partisan media, which it sounds like what uh, Nicole Hemmer gets into, right? Which is which was exacerbating grievances, right? And playing more into the cultural elements of this. Uh, then you know that was I just we, uh, we have to be honest. Those of us in the Bush wing, the Iraq War, uh, right. radicalized. Uh, people and I think made them less uh, uh, interested in the more neocon kind of uh, element within the Republican establishment. Uh, you know, then the the recession happens. Uh, obviously, that makes people more you know radicalized and suspect and suspect of elites and this kind of group within the party that went from went from being you know a third of the party to about half, right? And um, they might have been enough to win in 2012 uh, had had there been a better candidate than new you know aging Newt Gingrich kind of representing that wing mm-hmm. in 2012 and and mm-hmm. and it wasn't surprising that they took over in 2016 and then basically what happened is Donald Trump supercharges this right and he takes all yeah. of those right. el- negative elements and he puts them on steroids and, and anyone left within the party you know who who was turned off by this basically did what I did and left the party and he brings in new people and so now the balance of power has totally flipped and you know it's more like two thirds, a third, the other direction, and, and so absolutely, this has been a long time coming. 
Right. The stage was really already set by these these uh, earlier players for uh, for Donald Trump. I, I must say, she reminded me of one scene I'd heard of before, which is pretty pathetic when President George H.W. Bush, recognizing the power of Rush Limbaugh, invited him to the White House to spend the night in the Lincoln bedroom and carried his suitcase up the stairs to the Lincoln bedroom for Rush Limbaugh. That kind of... Uh. Oh, well, God. H.W. was a gentleman. I, I, can I just give him a gentleman pass on that one? I don't know. Do, we, do, we, do you need you to ruin what? all my heroes? No, no, no. Everybody has let me down over the last de- 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 decade. Can you I know just what? have one person? Yeah. Well, you know what? Good for you. I must say, uh, I I met President Bush, a couple, H.W., a couple of times, and he was a real gentleman, and he and I developed a, a nice little relationship. So I don't mean to dump on him. Maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> let me ask you this then. So what's next for Tim Miller? I'm I'm taking suggestions, um, uh, Bill. Uh, you know, I thought maybe I should just get out of this whole deal and become a shepherd or something, but but um, I, I, unfortunately, the threat isn't over. I do care about this. I, I I don't. I would like to be retired from being in politics, but I I really enjoyed doing Republican voters against Trump in 2020, which was these videos of of actual Republicans, you know, speaking out and saying why they were going to vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, I might have to do that again if he runs in 2024. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. deeply concerned about the election denial deniers that are going to get swept in in 2022. So um, the bulwark is going to continue uh, at minimum, uh, bigger and better than ever. If people uh, don't check it out, I really, I love what we're doing over there. Um, and and we're trying to add some more center left voices to kind of really make it be a space for, you know, people in the broad center who care about democracy, though we do have kind of a bunch of lefties who, who check it out because they're like, I need to hear what people who have some different opinions than me think, but I, I can't go all the way to the MAGA. So, you know, um, so it's been a really cool thing starting the bulwark. And, and so I'm going to keep doing that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm I'm taking ideas for, for what else to do on top of it. Well, I admire your courage, uh, and I hope and I encourage you to stay in the game because we need uh, strong people like you uh, and your voice in in the game. So, um, thanks so uh, much, y- Bill. You make an important contribution, and the Bulwark uh, is one of my favorite sites, and uh, you do a great a great job there. I was struck when you talked about, I think it was Elisa Farah, uh, in your last interview with her. Where she ended her interview saying, "I want hi- I want history to remember me the right way," and you say you do too. Uh, I think history will remember you the right way, Tim Miller. Um, so thank you for all you've done, and thank you for giving us the inside look in why we did it. Your new book. Thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate that. Good to have you with us, Tim. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. All right. See you, man. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Tim Miller again, his book, great book, Why We Did It. Check it out, uh, the uh, episode notes to today's podcast. You can get your own copy of that book. It is a wild read. Uh, he's a wild guy, and I'm glad he is where he is. And again, uh, just so appreciate the courage of a person like Tim Miller for breaking with Donald Trump. I wish more people, more Republicans had done the same. And we'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. It's going to be a big week this week. Thursday is the final hearing of the January 6th committee. You know it's going to be another blockbuster hearing. And we'll be here with our Roundtable on Friday to talk about that and all the other news of the week from Washington, D.C. Take care of yourselves. Be good, be strong, and come back and see us on Friday. For the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our Reporters Roundtable.